0: Somehow, high-functioning communities and affluent communities always end up having terrific schools because they don't have the kinds of problems that very poor communities do.
1: A better education system will not save our democracy. Higher wages will.
0: I had the sense when I read your Atlantic essay of, oh my god, this guy is woke.
2: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we explore
0: everything you wished you'd learn in Econ 101.
1: I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures.
2: I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Nick, you recently
1: got tweeted by President Obama. I know, that was, and uh, people's heads exploded. <laughs> um, yeah, we wrote, this, uh, we wrote this piece called Better Schools Won't Fix America that appeared as the lead essay in The Atlantic in the July issue. And it's an attack on what we call educationism, which is the belief that, the, you know, what ails America will be healed if we somehow fix our public schools. And it's it's a thing that I believe for most of my adult life and have recently come to terms with that was just wrong. That, in fact, if you want to heal America, it's not the education system that's failing. It's the economic system. Right. And and what was significant about President Obama's tweet was that President Obama was an educationist, too. Yeah. Right? Uh, He was kind of with me on that whole school reform thing and race in to the top. and all that yeah. stuff and none of it's worked really. I mean, you know, that's the problem is it just hasn't really worked. And so, um, when he retweeted the piece, which, and I think it's the first essay he's retweeted in like a year and a half. This is not something he does routinely um people's heads exploded because both because he was retreating a piece but also because it was at least it looked like an admission that maybe he was wrong uh, which is or at know, least, pretty cool or
2: at least willing to question <laughs> yeah. his yeah, uh, his priors right which is cool you're not the only one to have a change of heart on educationism
1: yeah so one of the queens of educationism uh, is or was a woman named Diane Ravitch uh, who led a lot of this thinking over decades, right. working right. for conservative think tanks uh, for the, George Bush, the first Bush the administration, the first Bush. Bush. also the Clinton administration, exactly as a as a big proponent of charter schools, curriculum uh, reform, yeah. the national High-stakes standards, testing, yeah, all, all that of stuff. that stuff. And about ten years ago, well before I did. Came to essentially this conclusion that this it was all a terrible mistake, and that the problem isn't the schools; the problem is poverty, and the difficulty that families have. And um, and so she's been on uh, you know on a mission to let people know that this thinking was wrong. And she's written a mess of books about it. The um, the reign of terror, Re- reign of error, reign of error. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah okay. <laughs> it is kind of funny yeah uh uh yeah the hoax of privatiz of the privatization movement and the danger to america's public schools and uh the death and life of great American school system how testing and choice are undermining education uh and um she um uh she's a remarkable woman, very courageous and we're super lucky to have her uh, chat with us. She's also a research professor of education at New York University and a historian of education. This is Nick. Oh,
0: and, hi, and, Nick. Very nice to, to meet you virtually. Yeah,
2: <laughs> nice to meet you. And, and, and this is David. It's a pleasure hi, to David. talk with you.
0: Yeah.
1: So... So let's start by Diane, if you wouldn't mind g- 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 telling us a little bit about your story, how you came sure. to education, and you know, start at the beginning.
0: <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, I've been I've been working in education basically forever. Uh, I worked in the first Bush administration as Assistant Secretary of Education and Charge of Research. Uh, before that, I had been working at uh, Columbia Teachers College, Columbia University. And then after that, I was in various conservative think tanks for many years. So I had a long history as a supporter of charter schools, testing, accountability, and all of that. And then in 2010, I published a book and said, I'm wrong. All these things I've been advocating for for 30 years are wrong. Uh, And so since then, I have been consistently writing about what I think is a better way. And one of the reasons I was very interested in... Uh, reading Nick about your decision to change your mind was that I had gone through that and I did it very publicly. Yeah, and uh, it it caused a, a stir. It still is. For years, people would say, "Why did you change your mind?" And on the assumption that no one ever changes their mind. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I I found that phenomenon amazing. And still, people uh, will ask me that: "How how come you changed your mind?" And I have to explain that I, I've discovered I was wrong, and they seem to find that amazing that anyone would ever admit they're wrong. It, and I, and said I was wrong.
2: Isn't that the the purpose of education, to change <laughs> minds?
0: Well, you know Literally? what said in, I said? Wrote, I wrote a book uh, in which I said I was wrong. It's called The Death and Life of the the Great American School System. That came out in 2010. And I said that, um, I quoted John Maynard Keynes, and he said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> right, um, exactly,
1: you know, exactly. I learned,
0: I learned things, uh, the things that I believed in uh, turned out not to be right, and over time I realized that I was supporting things that I just couldn't support anymore, and I thought better to publicly say I was wrong uh, than to continue supporting something that I know doesn't work. Um but I, what else can you do
1: yeah absolutely I, th- I think what's really interesting about this conversation is you know certainly you're not i would like to think that i'm not a stupid person or a or a person of ill will and these ideas were very attractive to me and you originally and what was it about those ideas that was attractive and and let's really go deep on why we were wrong and where we were wrong.
0: Well, I, I think that's a very important point, because, you know, when, when I kind of go back and say, why did I believe this so strongly? And I I went to public schools. I'm a graduate of the Houston yeah. Public Schools. Uh, and I was there from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I know now when I go back to Houston that most people that I know, pe- that people I'm uh, related to, have their kids either in private school. Uh, They're not in charter schools, but they're in private schools. Uh, I mean, they're uh, Jews going to Baptist schools and and, uh, people just choosing not to go to public school. And I think a lot of this has to do with integration. Uh, When I went to the public schools in Houston, they were segregated white. And the public schools over the years uh, absorbed kids of color, absorbed kids who had disabilities, absorbed kids who... Came from Mexico and didn't speak English, and none of that was true when I was in school. They were yeah. kind of. When people talk about the good old days, I know what those good old days were like. They, they
1: were very white.
0: Were all white. Yeah. And uh, yeah. You know, we had some kids who were trouble, but uh, we didn't have we didn't have the kinds of problems that teachers have today. So I think it's fairly easy to blame the schools and say, oh, it's bad teachers, it's bad schools, and that's why people are avoiding the schools. And I know that's not true. I know what it's about is people are trying to. Stay with their own kind. Uh, and so it, it's hard, but I just have a hard time understanding how our country can survive if we just stick with our own kind. Uh, yeah. And I know, you know, as an academic, and I've been an academic since, I don't know, way a long time ago, I hate to say how long, but I got my doctorate in 1975. And I was late then. I mean, I had been out of college a long time before I went to graduate school, so I'm, I'm old. So that's for starters. But what I realize now is that all the trouble this country's been through with desegregation, with all the troubles around the schools, it's all—it's mostly social and economic, and it's not about the teachers. It's not about the schools. I mean, People talk about the good old days as though there was a time when schools were great, and what they're really talking about is, the schools that didn't have uh, integration the schools that didn't have kids with disabilities. So that's part of my own personal story. And I I know as an academic that uh, integration actually worked, but we abandoned it because it was too hard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean, for my own part, as I uh, deconstruct You know, my own sort of journey and, you know, my my evolving thinking about education and education reform and so on and so forth. There are really two strands. The first is that I really believed, you know, in in, in what, what I call educationism, which is that if you just get the education system right, all the social and economic ills that the country faces will fall away that education is the solution to these problems and that better schools will create better people and better people will create a better society and a better society will, you know, then we'll go off off happily into the future. Um, And then there, there was another strand of my evolving view, which is that, of course, if you worked on education related things as long as I did or you have, one thing that you could not escape was that it wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. So that sort of frustration fed into this idea that, well, we just have to hire, we have to hold these schools to a higher standard somehow. And if we do, then, then, then that will make that first thesis true again, somehow. And, you know, where I came out was that, in fact, I had cause and effect completely wrong, that it is, you know, more or less, a restatement of your thesis that it's high-functioning communities that generate great schools, not the other way around, and that the problem that we face in the public schools is that that such a high proportion of the kids that end up in those schools come from economically devastated communities, and and you can't fix that with schools. You know, no matter what you do.
0: I went through a long period in my early. Earlier part of my career, where I thought curriculum was the answer, and I still know people who say this, and it's it's the story of the Common Core, for example. And the Common Core is, say, says, well, if all children study the same things, and have the same test, and have the same uh, teacher training, et cetera, that they'll all come out of the same place, and that's the way to eliminate poverty. But that's obviously not true, because there are kids who are in the same class with the same teacher who have, have different outcomes. But what you understand, which I figured out a while back, is that the most important determinant of how kids come out is what kind of homes they came from. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's kind of sad to discover because it sounds very determinist. But, in fact, um, the, most important cor- but the most important correlation with test scores is family income. Right. So when you, when you look at tests, and it doesn't matter whether it's a state test, a national test, or an international test, uh, the most important determinant of outcomes is family income, uh, of, of test scores. So when you have kids with high test scores on the SAT, they're from the wealthiest families, right? and kids with the lowest scores are from the poorest families. And sometimes you'll have outliers, and but the outliers don't prove that the proposition is wrong. They just show that sometimes there are poor kids who, no, no matter what obstacles are put in front of them, they will get high test scores. And there are rich kids who will actually be, unable to get a high score no matter how hard they try but they're outliers the, the fact is you can look at the whether it's SAT ACT or any test you give kids that standardized and they're they accurately refe- reflect family income and family education those two factors are overwhelming so if you really want to change society uh you would do the kinds of things that you were talking about in that absolutely brilliant article in the Atlantic which is uh wage stagnation uh, inequality uh, and these are hard topics to deal with because no one wants to pay more taxes. But wow. I don't see any other way out other than to uh, make the kinds of macroeconomic changes that make sure that everybody has access to a, a decent uh, wage or a well-paying job yeah. and has the chance to raise their family uh, in circumstances where they're not going to go hungry at night. Yeah. You probably haven't seen it, but the last book I wrote was called "Rain of Error in 2013. And the reason I wrote it was because um, many people had said, well, you know, you're, you're very critical of what we're doing, and you don't like charter schools, and you don't like vouchers. What are your solutions? So I said, okay, I'm going to write a book with my solutions. So it's about a third or 40% of that book was, here are the research-based answers, and it starts with prenatal care. Yeah. And when you look at, like, United Nations figures of where do we stand as a country in providing decent medical care to women, where is are tied with Somalia. I mean, it's that bad that if you're poor in this country, you're not likely to have decent medical care during your pregnancy, and the outcomes of that are are very bad for kids because they're likely to be born with some kind of a uh, a disability because of their uh, the mother couldn't get medical care while she while she was pregnant. But that's the beginning, and there are lots of other research-based answers uh, that you would pursue. You could reduce class sizes. That's a research-based yeah. solution. Uh, you can't teach 40 kids or 30 kids in a class when uh, uh, half of them are, are hungry and haven't had decent medical care and, and on and on. But it all comes back in the end to socioeconomics. Yeah. You fix that and the schools will look terrific. And yeah. The bottom line is, that you, as you said, it's the socioeconomics matter a whole lot more than uh, the particular school or teacher and Somehow, uh, high-functioning communities and affluent communities always end up having terrific schools because they don't have the the kinds of problems that very poor communities do.
1: Yeah, so our real breakthrough here was in our work on, in our very sort of um, in-depth analysis of neoliberalism, right, which is the dominant economic meaning system that frames how we understand these problems in the West. And the most evil thing about neoliberalism is that it trains you to believe that the economic outcomes that are reflected in the society are a product of essentially natural law, laws of nature, and that they are immutable, that poor people are poor because that's what they're worth. That's all, and that there's nothing you can do to the economic system to change those outcomes, other than for them to get Harvard MBAs, in which case they would be investment bankers, and then they would not be poor anymore. And what it doesn't permit you to see is that the reason that they're poor is that they're not paid enough money by their employers, <laughs> who, who, and and that, and once you once those scales fall from your eyes and once you can see that how much people are paid isn't a product isn't a consequence of their marginal productivity but rather their the power that they have relative to their employers then you can quite clearly see that it's not education that's creating these outcomes it's the economic system and then and then you're like oh no <laughs> You know, like we've been we, you know, we've been working on the wrong problem.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I had this sense when I read your Atlantic essay of, oh my God, this this guy is woke. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the scales <laughs> the scales have fallen from your eyes. Michael Young, he wrote a very famous book many years ago called The Rise of the Meritocracy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an old book.
0: It, yeah, it's an old book, but yeah. you had a new introduction about it ten years after it came out. I think it was in yeah. nineteen fifty eight, and he said uh, the problem with Standardized testing, among other things, is that it leads the people who are on top to believe they deserve to be on top because yes. they're so smart and their test scores are so good that whatever advantages they get, they deserve it. And the people who didn't get the high scores don't deserve it because it's their own fault. I immediately resonated with that because he says they're, they're members of what he calls the Lucky Sperm Club. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like they they started off on third base and thought they hit a home run and i had high test scores i came from a very large family and i have to say i was not a person of inherited wealth but i had a very high uh, test scores and i thought i'm smarter than anybody else and i deserve it and it was only uh, later in life that i said i'm lucky that i'm <laughs> that i had high test scores mm-hmm. but i don't deserve a better life than people who have low test scores right. and that even if you don't have high test scores you can be so good so great at so many other things that are not measured by standardized tests and if we want to have a really good society we can't have these this artifact called the standardized test deciding who who deserves to have a good life and who doesn't yes and that's kind of against my own self-interest but that's where i came out
1: yeah i could not agree more and by the way you're not going to have a functioning democracy if the only people who can earn enough to lead dignified lives are software developers and investment bankers. Because
2: <laughs> yeah. what are the other ninety-eight? That's, that's only half of the SAT. <laughs> yeah. They did well on the math yeah. portion.
0: Yeah, Maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah. lawyers. It seems we're we're yeah. heading in that direction now. Yeah, are you I, you appear in my new book, and the funny thing is, the first couple of mentions of your name—holy crap! Support, <laughs> no, it's when you're supporting Bill Gates in Washington State. Oh, okay. And <laughs> I'm very I'm very very familiar with you know four referendums, and you win the fourth referendum. And how very few people put up the, the millions of dollars to win that referendum. And then I thought, But then I follow the story through to, you know, the court decision that says you can't get public money." and then the next decision says, "Well, you can get lottery money." And then comes the first evaluation that says the kids going to charter schools are not getting better outcomes than the kids not in charter schools." And then comes the next headline that says, "And, and charter schools that were open at all of this expense are closing. Because very few people are enrolling for them, and I think why so many millions. And so then I end up, and you're in my last chapter. Is here's somebody who figured it out. So (laughs) you end up being one of the heroes. You're one of the heroes (laughs) of my book now. Thank God. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm glad that you didn't finish the book early. (laughs)
0: That's right. That's true. If I'd written it a year ago, you'd have been uh, one one of the uh, bad guys.
2: See, see, Nick, this is one of the benefits of slow writing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so good. But I guess, you know, from my point of view, I wonder, and people always ask me, why did you change your mind? So I have to say, how did you change your mind? Because you are with the creme de la creme. And I had it in my, in the book I wrote in 2010, I had a chapter called The Billionaire Boys Club. Which I think a lot of the people mentioned didn't like it very much. Uh, but how did you, given where you are coming from, uh, I mean we're 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 coming at this from very different angles. I as an academic and you as somebody who's part of the group that I've been studying, how did you figure this out?
1: My real transformation came because my intuitions told me, 10 years ago, that all this work I'd put into public education reform and funding wasn't delivering the benefits to the society that I lived in that I imagined that they would. And I began to see that it was the economic system more than the school system that was at the heart of the problem. And so, Diane, among other things, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we cooked up the $15 minimum wage here. And it was through that process of just doing that, that you began to recognize that the best thing you could do for the schools was to increase the wages of the parents. <laughs> you know, like like you know, you show it. Also, having my own kids, right? So I have two lovely children. I have a 19-year-old boy uh, and a 17-year-old girl. And to get my son to do his homework remains as one of the single hardest tasks I have ever had in my life. I mean, he and he grew up in insane privilege with me and my wife standing over him 12 hours a day. He still wouldn't turn in his homework. And I said to myself, oh my God, if it's this hard for us to get our son to do this, think about the poor people who struggle to get by on seven dollars an hour like how do they do it it's impossible it's impossible and that was also a big awakening for us is just our own children well
0: i think that it's it was tremendously important to me to discover that um it was the combination of family and also school funding and that The charter school movement, and this is, as I said, I was there at the beginning, and I was very supportive of charters. I was working in the first Bush administration, and then I was working in in different conservative think tanks, like at the Hoover Institution, and we were supporting charters, and we were supporting some of our colleagues at the the think tank supported vouchers. But what I realized, and I guess this is what turned me, was that I was actually supporting, by supporting charters and vouchers, the further defunding of the public schools, which made it even harder for them to compete because the the more charters thrived, the less money there was for public schools. And the charter sector, 90% of it's non-union, which means that the teachers come and go with great rapidity. Uh, Even in the best charters, there's a very high teacher turnover. And what what students, what kids don't need is instability and turnover. Right. And charter people will say, it doesn't matter if charter is closed because that's built in, that's baked into the model they're supposed to close. Well, they're not supposed to close it. <laughs> School no. should be no. stable. Yeah, right. You, you that's nonsense. Kids need stability. <laughs> they don't need yeah. You know, it's not like a startup. You're not uh, trying a new tech company and no. saying, well, that didn't work out. Let's pull the plug. And that's happening right now in the charter sector with uh, great frequency. In fact, one of the points in my new book is that there has been a dr- fairly dramatic decline and the number of new charters opening, and the number that are closing has begun to, every year, has begun to approach the number that are opening every year, and this is the first time that's ever happened. So it, yeah. the, the, the sector itself is very unstable, and it may, its great successes are built on this idea that if you can cherry-pick your kids, you'll get good results, and you can cherry-pick the kids, and you can get good results, you yeah. know this. But the very high-performing charter chains are the ones that have the most attrition, which means that they are sucking out the best kids from public schools, leaving the the public schools even worse off, not only taking their funding but taking their best students, and then crowing that they got higher test scores.
1: Yeah, but the other real light bulb for me was just recognizing that it was the economic system. Again, you know, I started on my education quest not because I was a lover of education. Y- you came from the world of education. I didn't. I just wanted to create a high-functioning society. And mm-hmm. and, uh, I, and and I the more you looked at it, the more you realized that we are creating the society where the only people who could live adequate lives had a graduate degree in some field and, you know, got a MBA or something like that, and that every other profession was a poverty wage profession, and that that was you know like somebody's got to do the janitorial work, and well, somebody's got to be the school teacher, because exactly. in most parts of the country, starting teachers poverty wage exactly, and that, that and that those wages, for instance, a teacher with a master's degree, th- those folks aren't underpaid because they're not. Poorly, because they're poorly educated, they're underpaid because the, the powers that be pay them poorly. And that right. once you see that relationship more clearly, then you recognize that we cannot rely on a school system to generate an equitable, stable secure democracy, you have to you have to rely on the economic system and the power structures. And that, for me, was like the real thing. And I will tell you this other thing, Diane, is that, you know, so as you must know, I run around the country talking about inequality. And when I'm in a group of rich people, the number one pushback I get is it's all the school's fault. That's right. everywhere I go. It's like, oh well, if you just fix the education system, then we don't have this problem. And after I'd heard that about a hundred times, I was like, okay, this is like the, we have to organize a response to this excuse, which is what it is, right? If you're if you're a wealthy person, nothing. Uh, it's shifting nothing, the, it's shifting it's the, shifting blame, the really. blame, right? It just makes it's a, this insanely effective way of making yourself. Um, excluding yourself from the problem, which I think is, you know, it's wrong and damaging.
0: Well, Nick, uh, something that I think is important to realize, and and I recognize this because I've been around a long time, is that people on the far right, and I'm thinking now of of people like Betsy DeVos and uh, the Koch brothers and, uh, you know, the libertarian right, have always hated public schools. And I know this because, you know, being a public school graduate, I was in Houston very aware that there were people who said, oh, you just can't throw money at the schools. Meanwhile, they were happy to throw money at the private schools that their own kids went to, but not at the public schools that that people like me went to. And uh, I guess it it was interesting confirmation for me to see that line in your article where you said that 40 of the 50 uh... most successful family foundations in America are supporting this idea that schools are the problem and you can't look outside the schools to find the solution. Right. And right. I find, you know, this is something that has fascinated me for at least the last decade and um, I've been trying to figure out how do how do I reach people who who you associate with but I usually don't and and get through the message that the you got to stop beating up on the schools because The main success here has been to demoralize people who are teachers so that we have teacher shortages all over the country. And you can't have a decent education system if you're not going to have good people uh, go into teaching without feeling that they're sacrificing their their life and they're going to live a life of semi-poverty by being a teacher. You have to have people say, this is a noble profession and the rewards are not only psychic income, but I can afford to live a middle-class life.
2: Right, absolutely. Uh, and we,
0: we can't say you're going to, at the top of your career, you'll be making sixty five or $70,000 a year, which is less than, uh, you know, as Warren Buffett once said, that's less than my secretary. So you have to have a profession that is well-paid and not just by merit pay, because merit pay doesn't work. Merit pay it's not like people are holding back their best lessons and saying, I'm not going to teach my best unless somebody pays me more, and then I'll teach my best. (laughs) People are in the classroom knocking themselves out every day, trying to get across history and science and and the arts and all this. And we have to make schools places where they're they're rewarding places to be a student as well as a teacher. I have a lot of concern for the tone deafness of people who have the resources saying, turn off the spigot, don't fund those schools, They're, they're bad schools. Let's replace them with schools that that are come and go. Uh, and I, I have to mention one of the things that I did several years ago was to help create an organization to fight for these ideas. It's called the Network for Public Education. And all my friends and would be very angry if I didn't mention this. Yeah. Uh, we don't have we don't have a whole lot of money, but we ha- what we have is almost 400,000 people who are members of the group. Wow. And wow. mostly they're teachers and parents. We're working with baptist ministers across the state of texas who believe that uh, in the separation of church and state and working with the the pastors for texas children and and parent groups across texas uh, those groups have been able to stop vouchers in texas which is as you know is a very conservative state year after year we've not been as successful in every state and so there are states like kentucky that have passed charter legislation and the charter bills by the way are now coming from the far right there are no democrats in kentucky supporting charters uh, West Virginia just passed a charter bill. Every single Democrat voted against charters in West Virginia because they know their schools are desperately underfunded. So, you know, we we've been doing as a as an organization the best we can.
2: So, it, so, so Diane, in our, our remaining time, l- let's get to that uh, notion of the best possible public school. Uh, if you were a benevolent dictator, absolute power to solve solve this problem you know, benevolent as opposed to the one we have in the White House right now. Right. yeah um, What would you do? If you were the education czar, what would you do to improve education in this country?
0: Well, I, I'd say that the first thing I would do would be um, to try to have wraparound services so that when kids have very stressful environments that they're living in, that they have the social workers and the psychologists and uh, the, that they need to, to, to meet their needs. Uh, the, I insist that teachers are well-paid and that it's a, a, a profession that's attractive to very a, a very well-educated young men and women who want to come into it not for a two-year stint or even a three-year stint, but who would say, this is a career I would like to make. This is such a, a rewarding and exciting profession, not just economically, but because uh, the psychic rewards are huge. Uh, I would if I had the money and the power, I would make sure that there was a fantastic arts program in every school so that kids had reason to come to school other than to take tests. Uh, I, I would el- eliminate the whole federal testing regime because it's been a massive failure. Uh, we have spent, literally as a society, billions of dollars on testing and test prep over the last 20 years, and it's been a waste because the, the test scores nationally haven't budged for the last at least the last decade uh, so all that money should be redirected towards uh, encouraging creativity, critical thinking, the arts, uh, making sure that when kids, uh, that, first of all, that there is a school band, that there is a school orchestra, and that the kids have uniforms and they have instruments and I mean basic stuff like that. Um, I would like to see the public schools have the same resources and programs and opportunities uh, for intellectual development and also uh, aesthetic pleasure and, and all the great things about growing up uh, and athletics, and et cetera, that, that is available to private school kids. So I think that I go back to the, something that John Dewey uh, wrote uh, more than a century ago, and he said what the best and wisest parent wants for their child is what we should want for all the children of the community, and anything less than that is not only unlovely but destroys our democracy. And I think that, to me, is the most profound thing ever written about education, which is that we should want for all children what we want for our own children, and that's that's my ideal.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. There's no mystery about wh- what a great school looks like. Go just go to the best private school in New York City, and you know, <laughs> right. just do that. Right. Everywhere. And there, and there are many of them. And there are many great. I should add, yeah.
0: no. Yeah. There are many great public schools. There are yeah. many great public sure. schools, but they are in wealthy communities yeah. where the community is willing yeah. to pay the price of having great schools. Yeah. Uh, and we as a society are not willing to pay the price of having great schools for all kids Uh, and so we have a state like florida for example that now has four or five different voucher programs where the kids are given basically four or five thousand dollars and told go find any school you want and there are no standards whatsoever for the voucher schools in florida so they're going to um, backwoods religious schools where they learn their science from the bible and mm-hmm. I keep thinking, if you really want to prepare kids to live in the 21st century and to be good at whatever it is they want to be, you, you they're not going to learn their science from the Bible. I mean, you can revere the Bible without considering it to be a science textbook.
2: Yeah yeah, so so I've got one final question for you, Diane.'ve you've, been, uh, you've uh, done a, a lot of good work. Why, why are you still doing this? Why aren't you retired?
0: First of all, I feel I have a lot to make up for. I had years of, of advocating for high-stakes testing and accountability, and you know, teachers and students have to be held accountable if their scores don't go up. And So I had this awakening about uh, a decade ago and said, you know, I'm wrong. So I have a lot to make up for, but I also just feel very strongly that as a society we can't continue to go in the direction we're going in now without losing something that I've believed in all my life, which is... You know, I grew up revering America, and this present moment we live in today with a a president who is openly racist, it's terrifying. It's like all of the things I grew up believing are turning out to be at risk. And I want to see the America that I've always believed in become good for everybody and not just for me, not just for my kids, not just for your kids, but for all the kids. If that sounds corny, maybe it's because it is.
2: not, Not at all.
1: That's fantastic.
0: I, well,
2: I hope you get to see it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I. Hope,
0: I hope. Okay. Listen, thank you so uh, much for calling. It's been a great you. pleasure. To yeah, thank to you. Thank
1: you so much.
0: Keep writing and, and, and speaking out.
1: I will. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: bye
2: So uh, we're talking about this, Nick, because uh, you wrote a piece in the July issue of The Atlantic. Yeah, just to
1: be clear. We wrote a piece. We wrote a piece. (laughs) Thank you. We wrote a piece of the July issue. Took us a year. It
2: it did. It was brutal. Brutal, brutal. And part of the reason why it was so brutal, Nick, was that you were trying to tell the truth and not burn bridges. Or all of my bridges. (laughs) So so how are your wealthy friends who really have long embraced educationism, how are they responding to this critique? Yeah, I mean...
1: It's mixed. And when the piece went out, we got some criticism from folks who said that, uh, you know, um, that 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 this is not a real thing and that people know this and stuff like that. Uh, um, But, you know, I stand up in front of crowds a lot and talk about inequality. And I can tell you definitively that the biggest pushback I get is is the educationism pushback that the problem isn't inequality that the problem is the damn education system and if we just had charter schools and no unions that right. people would get a decent education and they all get good jobs and blah blah and we don't have anything else to worry about and 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 you know I, I, by I, I think in the piece we mentioned that basically all the big foundations right 40
2: list, 40 out of the 50 largest
1: 45 i think fam- family
2: foundations it? Uh, make education one of their primary uh, yeah. activities, whereas uh, only only one we could find one that mentioned anything about wages yeah. or or income right. or poverty.
1: And and clearly, the bigger lever, if you want to make the country work better and in fact improve schools, is not so much to invest in new curriculum, but to invest in labor standards to ensure that people are paid enough, but well enough to both have a tax base to afford good schools, but also families that are stable enough to make sure their kids can function in school, too. And, you know, so, uh, you know, some people pushed back. Some surprising people were moved by uh, some of these arguments. And I think it's just I think it's a very important argument to get out there. I think it's very important for people to just face up to the fact that it that Education really is only about twenty percent of what defines how you're going to how you're going to do in life. Wages, <laughs> I think, if you're really honest, are are, are seventy five or eighty percent of the remaining eighty percent. If you pay people well and treat them decently, good things happen. And the only thing that prevents that from occurring is power is power differentials. So,
2: uh, despite how totally totally wrong you were on charter schools, <laughs> I know your heart. Was uh, always in the right place. But I want to ask you a question, yeah. and I think this sum, sums up uh, a, another Im- important point. How, how much do you think you spent over the years on education reform?
1: Oh, good God. I have no idea. I mean— Millions. Mil- millions. I don't and, know. I mean, and so much time, and, and I don't even know how to calculate and, and it. And how yeah.
2: much money do you think you spent on passing a $15 minimum wage?
1: Well— about the same but you know millions millions but if you compare the efficacy yeah yeah uh-huh. yeah no I mean yeah it's yeah. clear which is the better lever right we you know the the $15 minimum wage efforts to date probably I think have affected something like 30 million workers probably are generating an incremental hundred 150 billion dollars uh, annually and you know that's clearly the bigger lever and the better lever and what what folks should help with. <laughs> right should you should 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 uh, should people out there decide that they want to help with something right so so donating money to schools not no a bad it's thing. great not great. a bad thing and I, I, but we we it's a good thing you know like we, we, everything we do to improve our education system is a positive it's just massively inadequate to the to the task at hand a better education system will not save our democracy higher wages will Full stop. That's my message. Okay. Full stop. This is Nick Hanauer. You've reached the magic voicemail box where you can leave me a question. All you have to do is state your name, where you're calling from, and your question as clearly as possible.
0: Hey, Nick and company. This is Warren from Toronto, Canada. A question about capitalism and climate change Uh, with growth of even 3% a year. In just over 20 years, we wind up doubling the size of the global economy, and the planet seems currently unable to sustain that level of growth. Is there a model of capitalism that provides decent incomes for people without requiring growth? Uh, you know, growth has always been indicated as one of the sinclanons of, uh, of capitalism. Is there a way of achieving uh, effective capitalism that achieves uh, the goal of solving problems? Without ramping up growth that destroys the planet. Thanks so much for all you do. Really enjoy the podcast.
1: Yeah. So Warren from Canada, those Canadians always ask the best questions, don't they? <laughs> those darn Canadians. Um, here's here's I think what our view is. The word growth uh, is a big word. It means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it presently is defined as increases in GDP, which presently defined as as output and. Uh, we believe strongly that the one of the first big and important steps in essentially reforming how we think about economics, is to change our definition of growth from output to outcomes. So move from how much stuff we make to how we improve uh, how we improve the material circumstances of people. And what we call that is solutions to human problems. And once you think about it in that way, there are all sorts of ways for us to dematerialize the economy while simultaneously improving people's lives. Here's what we think won't work is the North Korea plan where we all sort of huddle in darkness and turn out all the lights and don't do anything. I think that that I think one of the most unrelenting features of humanity is the desi- is the continual desire to improve our circumstances and we have to find a way to do that for people without Simultaneously incinerating right. the planet. Right. And
2: I think here's a great practical example of that. Uh, moving from incandescent bulbs to LED bulbs is growth. Right. Y- yet you're using a hell of a lot yeah. less electricity yeah. for the same amount of Correct. light. Um, on, on an early podcast of ours, the physicist Cesar Hidalgo made the point that human knowledge and know-how is the only factor of production that can increase in per capita terms. And so if you think about it that way, r- rather than growth coming from consuming more and more natural resources, it can consume more and more knowledge and know-how. Correct. And knowledge and know-how is both infinite and uh, ethereal. It, yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't embody any... Uh,
1: matter or energy per se. That's right. And so we have, of course, an enormous challenge and an existential, really an existential challenge to find a way to continue to improve the circumstances of people on planet Earth, particularly the least fortunate, without incinerating the planet in, in the meantime. But I do think that by very programmatically Making the bad things a lot more expensive, like consuming fossil fu- fuels, and the good things less expensive, uh, like services or experiences. Right. Um. Good theater versus bad theater yeah. is growth. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You yeah. know, uh, right. a,
2: a good hamburger. Well, a good veggie burger <laughs> versus a bad veggie burger. Look, the great new veggie burgers that yeah. are coming on right. the market. Yeah. That's growth. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And doing a Skype for free uh, versus having to get on an airplane to go meet with somebody face to face, that's also economic growth, right. despite the fact that one thing is free and the other thing uh, costs a lot of money. So, and so,
2: so to, to sum up, Warren, you know, capitalism, yeah, in some form or another, that's based on growth. But I, I think, Nick, you agree that we can dematerialize growth and continue to get all the benefits from it. Yeah, I do we love we love to answer questions from all over the world even canada so if you've got a question for nick and the crew at pitchfork economics please give us a call at 731-388-9334
1: and leave a message yeah so in the next episode of pitchfork economics we're going to talk about a very important way to think about the evolving nature of labor standards which is portable benefits
2: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paulini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week.